Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne. And I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. live in a very mysterious world and there's so much that we don't understand about it and that's just on this planet but we also live in a universe that for those of us who are experiencers know is teeming with life there are many things that happen here that just don't make any sort of sense at all some of these things we can say are lies or hoaxes delusions or misinterpretations of events seen or experienced but sometimes it's very very hard to dismiss the strange things that happen especially when we can't rationalize the event whatever that may be especially when it's so far out of our paradigm of what our shared reality may be and even if we are able to create some sort of rationalization for what we just experienced or saw, very often we know we are just fooling ourselves but refuse to delve any deeper into the subject for fear of what we may find or what it may reveal about the nature of this reality we find ourselves in. We find ourselves not ready to question or want to acknowledge that the event even happened. So, we choose the easier and safer option for us, and that is trying to rationalise the event away, or to even deny to ourselves that the event actually happened. Some people who have witnessed UFOs in our day or night skies, or even on the ground as the case may be, don't want to talk about what they saw, don't want to think about it, because it's too far out of their considered version of what reality is, and that is a perfectly understandable reaction for some, particularly since this subject is still treated with derision and as a joke by some people. Others simply refuse to believe or even consider the probability that life exists outside of this planet. And so these people try and put the experience behind them to forget about it and move on with their version of reality. However, Sometimes this is just not possible because some people have follow-up experiences that most often shake them very seriously and can create fear in them. I'm referring here to the mysterious men in black or MIB. Most people when they hear the term men in black they think of that very funny 1997 movie starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones with that wonderfully catchy rap tune sung by Will that spanned a franchise of four movies in total. They think it is all just a Hollywood invention, not actually knowing of the reality of the situation. Often people still treat this aspect of the UFO subject with a great deal of scepticism and doubt. But for those who have experienced the men and sometimes women in black for themselves, they know very well 
of the reality of their existence. I personally have had an experience with these men in black when I was a kid, the day after having a UFO encounter. It left an indelible impression on me and I'll share my experience later in this episode. So, are you ready to take a trip with me into this part of the Shadowlands and see what we discover? Then let's begin. Firstly, what are the men in black? These elusive men and sometimes women, who or what are they? When did they first come into the consciousness of humanity? Let's take a brief look firstly at what they are, then at the known history of these beings, people, whatever they may be, what they do or their supposed role, and then I'll give you a physical description of them, which hasn't altered too much from the 20s when they were first reported. Finally, I'll share some historical accounts, my own experience along with my mum's and some more recent accounts. Yes, they still do happen. So, what do the men in black do? These men in black are mysterious strangers that often, but not always, show up after close encounters or sightings of UFOs. They know all about the person they are confronting. They know personal stuff about them that no one else may know. They know precisely where they were and what they saw, even if the witness has not told another living soul. They reportedly attempt to threaten witnesses and reporters of UFO encounters, and researchers actually, and strange occurrences into silence, such as one incident in the Mothman case in the USA. They do this through intimidation and coercion, often threatening both the witness and their families or intimating that they will harm them in some way. They are sometimes thought of as a sort of damage control because it appears that their job is, or at least was in the past, to contain and stifle information from getting out to the public. But really, that cat's pretty much out of the bag now. So, what do these men in black look like? Generally, the men in black appearances are all roughly the same, and certainly the ones I experienced as a child fitted right into the normal description of them. These men are reported as being male in form, however, not always. Nevertheless, they do always appear in groups of no less than two, generally three. They're dressed exactly the same way with land black suits, white or grey shades as well as a tie, generally wearing black shoes and socks, sometimes said to be on the wrong feet, like they don't know how to dress properly. As well, they generally wear a black fedora hat with sunglasses on no matter what time of day or night. They are always described as being tall, generally over 6 foot or 1.8 metres tall. Dress-wise, they tend to look a lot like Agents J and K from the MIB movie franchise. The movie did follow that part of their description quite accurately. Their clothing has been described mostly as unrealistically neat and tidy and wrinkle-free. Despite that, sometimes their outfits appear quite soiled. They tend to appear in large black Cadillacs or sedan-type cars, or the older-type cars in earlier cases with running boards. The men in black I saw certainly had a car with running board on it, which fitted in with that era, actually. I vividly remember the running board as a third man in black was standing with one foot on it. With their physical appearance, they have been described variously as tall but thin, generally anyway. 
with the odd exception. Their skin can be anything from pasty white looking like it's painted on or plastic in appearance, sometimes with bright red lips possessing an almost oriental appearance or looking like a racially ambiguous crypto-Asian type of appearance. Some reports have them looking almost Italian, Burmese or Indian in appearance. Generally they are bald, but sometimes have very, very fine, wispy and generally blonde-coloured hair, if they have any at all. Some are said to walk with a quite unusual walking motion, sometimes moving their hips like their swivel joints, so they at times appear to produce a gliding or rocking effect. Some witnesses say the way they walk makes them appear intoxicated, or they walk in a very stilted and robotic sort of way, like it's not natural for them to walk. Their speech can display normally with accents from whatever country they appear in, or they have a very mechanical, monotone sounding voice, variously described as metallic and even robotic in cadence and tone. Generally, they are facially and vocally expressionless, or they smile inappropriately, like they don't know how to do it properly, but most give off a feeling of menace, very cold and sinister in feeling, like they mean to do you harm, or at the least are a threat to you and your family, very intimidating. I know they certainly intimidated my mother. They are not above using scare tactics and intimidation to keep witnesses quiet about what they've witnessed, generally knowing what the witnesses had seen, even if they'd not told a soul about it and wanting them not to tell a soul. When they contact people, they present like they are part of a secret organisation. At times, they'll even show people a white card with the word security written on it, often referring to each other by a number rather than using a name, all very mysterious indeed. I'm not here to speculate what they may or may not be. I'll leave that up to you all to make up your own mind. I'm merely here to present the information to you all. I personally know what I and my mum both experienced and really that's all I can speak to. Here's a bit of the known and recorded background of the men in black in modern recorded times. Please note that there are so many of them. I'm only including those I consider interesting or different, and only very few because of time constraints. The very first publicly recorded encounter with a man in black was from a news reporter in West Virginia in 1924. This chap's name was John Cole. He apparently visited the site of a supposed airplane crash in one Braxton County and while there was told by a man in a suit with high cheekbones, slant eyes, dark skin, that no crime had been committed with the crash and that no one was hurt. While he was on the site of the crash, he picked up what he called a thingamajig from off the ground, amongst the debris, and he took it home with him. At 3am the very next morning he was woken by knocking on his door. A supposed army officer with the same foreign appearance as the man in the suit demanded the return of the metal thingamajig, which he was given. Harold Dahl was visited at 7am by a man dressed in black who drove him in a black Buick sedan to a cafe where he told him about his sighting of six donut-shaped objects the day before near to Tacoma, Washington State, and said that if he loved his family, he would keep quiet about the matter. 
Dahl was later questioned by two Air Force intelligence officers, Frank Brown and William Davidson. When they set off by air to return to their base, the plane crashed and they were killed. Two days later, Kenneth Arnold, who had also investigated the affair, was flying home when his engine cut out and he was forced to crash land. I've read many versions of his account in line and commonly those reported say that Dahl admitted that the story was a hoax, but in August 1947 teletype from the Seattle FBI secret agent George Wilson to J. Edgar Hoover stated that Please be advised that Dahl did not admit to Brown that his story was a hoax, but only stated that if questioned by authorities, he was going to say it was a hoax because he did not want any further trouble over the matter. Albert Bender, in the late summer of 1953, made a series of discoveries which led him to believe that he'd finally found the truth to the UFO cover-up. He had planned to reveal his findings in the October issue of his quarterly Space Review magazine. But before the issue was published, he was visited by three men dressed in black, who had already read the unpublished report and who confirmed his findings. The silences, as he called them, then scared Bender to the point where he did not publish the report, but left a warning. We advised those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. Bender then suspended publishing his publication and dissolved the IFSB which was his Flying Saucer Investigation Bureau. Shortly after, he closed down the Space Review and the IFSB. He gave an interview to a local newspaper in which he said that he had been visited by three men wearing dark suits and that they had ordered him to stop publishing material about flying saucers. Bender said that he had been scared to death and that he couldn't eat or sleep for a couple of days. Closer to home, in Easter of 1954, three men photographed a UFO over the Nullarbor plane and then had their film confiscated by the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, ASIO. One was later visited by a supposed ASIO agent who ordered silence and, quote, frightened the living shit out of me. When I was a young child, probably between four to six years old, so somewhere between 1960 to 1962, oh my God, now you know my age, yes, I've been around the block once or twice. I lived in Palmston North, in the lower North Island of New Zealand. My father had a scrap metal business there, and our home was on the business property in an industrial area. It was right opposite a Frosty Jack ice cream factory. So for those of you old enough who are listening in New Zealand, you might remember Frosty Jack. Great ice cream. I used to really like Fridays because that was the day the factory would clean out their freezers and would generally dump the ice in the street to melt. Of course, in those days, that was more or less acceptable to do stuff like that. I used to like watching the ice melt, especially because sometimes one of the workers would walk across the road and give me an ice block. So I always made a point of being out there watching and talking with the workers when I was at home. And I just liked the attention the workers gave me. They made me feel special and happy talking to them. Anyway, this day, I can't remember why I was home. I was ill or something. It was smoker time as there were people outside, four or five of them having a cup of tea. I even remember one of the guys was sitting against a huge pile of ice so around 10am in the morning, early autumn or winter's day because it was cold as the ground was cold where I was sitting playing out in the front yard and the sun was warm on my skin. 
Suddenly, there was a high-pitched whistling sound and a vibration that seemed to rattle the toys I was playing with on the wooden box. It got louder and louder, so loud I had to cover my ears. It was so high-pitched, it really hurt my ears, and I didn't know where it was coming from. I I covered my ears and I noticed all the workers across the road looking excitedly and pointing at something and also some of them were covering their ears as well. As the noise, the whistling sort of sound was so loud and so painful. I turned to look at what they were pointing at and to my surprise, directly above my home and descending slowly till it came to a stop in a kind of like a a swaying uh, motion like a leaf falling from a tree was a classic saucer-shaped UFO spinning rapidly and with white lights blinking on and off. It was, as I recall, silver in colour. The pitch of the whistling was very high and very ear-piercing. I had ruptured my eardrum as a kid, so this was especially painful to me. And also, there was a sort of change in ear pressure as well that I think was probably more painful. And even today, I can't go diving because... The water pressure hurts my ears, so the change of pressure really affected me. It was painful. My mum came running out of the house to see what the noise was about. She stood there as shocked as the workers were. I don't know how long the ship stayed there. It was easily as wide as the width of our whole section. I don't know how high it was in the air either. As a kid, I had no way of judging that. After a period of time, it suddenly shot off into the air vertically and disappeared in the matter of a blink of an eye. Poof, just like that. I didn't remember until many, many years later that I had actually had an experience on board this ship or that I had been transported up by means of some sort of blue beam that descended from the ship and engulfed me. But that's for another episode. So that was very interesting, exciting even, and after a short time of everyone animatedly discussing what they'd seen, my mum and the workers together talking about it and me, you know, being a kid listening in, the workers went back to work, mum went back inside to continue whatever she was doing at the time, and I went back to watching the ice melting and playing with my toys, and that was that, we thought. Early the next morning, there was a knock on the front door. Being a young kid, it was such a thrill when anyone knocked on the door, and I loved to be the first to open it. In fact, my older sister and my younger sister, who was a toddler at the time, and I would all race to answer it when someone was there. So I ran to the door to see who was there, but mum opened the door, and I was there right beside her in the doorway. Standing there were two classic men in black, wearing suits, fedora hats, sunglasses and with a posh, low black car in the street outside our house that had a running board. One of them stood on the doorstep, one stood on the footpath to his side and there was another on the street who was standing beside the car with one foot on the running board. They both gave off very oppressive, very threatening and authoritarian vibe. So much so that mum immediately pulled me behind her for safety. I could feel her hands shaking as she held me there. Even though they made me feel scared, what scared me more was Mum's reaction. I remember how white the men looked, very, very pale. The men basically told Mum that she would not talk about what had happened yesterday and, in fact, that she would forget it had ever happened, especially if she knew what was good for her. They kept expressing that she would forget after... I don't know, a couple of minutes? The man at the back said, what about the kid? The front guy said, she's too young, won't remember anyway. 
Well, that made me more determined to remember it. No one, no one told me what I could and could not remember. And to this day, so many decades later, I remember those comments absolutely clearly. I am very determined when I make up my mind to be so. The men abruptly left and I did not see what happened to them because mum slammed the door shut. I remember that because we all got, as kids, we all got a real growling for slamming the door and she did it herself. She was so shaken up, she had to sit and have a cup of tea and a cigarette. I remember her hands were shaking so badly she could barely light the smoke. And of course, with the hindsight of some maturity, mum mum was only in her late 20s at the time. So I can only imagine her feelings with wee ones to protect and her husband away on a business trip. So, life went on. Then years later when I was an adult with children of my own and before I went to live in North Carolina from New Zealand, I went to Napier for a last visit with my mum. We were sitting in the lounge discussing our family UFO experiences and I said to mum, do you remember the Frosty Jack UFO and the men in black? She said, what are you talking about? So, I reminded her of the incident, going over it all in detail, and all of a sudden she said, Oh my God, I completely forgot about that, completely, but I remember it now. And she was able to validate and recall everything that she remembered from that day. So, that was my Men in Black incident, the only one to date in my life, but very, very real and indelibly recorded in my memory. Since then, perhaps despite them, or because they said not to talk about it, I've made it my business to talk about UFOs and my experiences whenever the subject is brought up. Regardless of what people think of me, I simply don't care. Even more now at my age, I don't care. It's my truth and I will always speak about it. So, on to 1971, when one Jim Wilson of the Eastern Midlands was visited by two men who said they were with the Ministry of Defence. They told him he might as well forget about the light he'd seen in the sky in late August. This is now October of the same year. They told him it had been identified as the Russian satellite Cosmos 408, but this was later proven to be not correct. Two men in a black Jaguar car started parking by his house in the evening. Police checks later discovered that its number plate was false. On the 21st of October, police officers approached the car to question the men, but suddenly it melted away to nothingness. In 1975, a gentleman named Anton Ponce de Leon, who was an Argentinian ufologist, was visiting Sequani, where there had been a large number of UFO sightings. Whilst there, he happened to meet a reporter from Lima, Peru, who worked for a newspaper called the Ultima Hora. The reporter had actually photographed three UFOs in Capayani, Argentina, and he took them to be developed. When he returned to his hotel room, he found that two gentlemen in black and with hats had trashed his room, presumably looking for the images, and further harassment from these men in black had made him extremely frightened. 
again in 1975, a gentleman by the name of Carlos de los Santos Montiel had previously had a close encounter with three flying discs when he was flying his light plane as he was approaching Mexico City. He was on his way driving to a TV station to share his experience when two black limousines blocked his car in. Four men got out and warned him not to talk, so he went home. But he later agreed to talk with Alan Hynek about his experience, but again was warned off by the men in black. On September the 11th, 1976, there was a very famous case involving a gentleman who was a family doctor and a hypnotist from Old Orchard Beach in Maine, USA. This account was one of the most detailed accounts of a men in black visit. His name was Herbert Hopkins. this incident happened, Hopkins was 58 years old, well respected and liked in his community. He was at that stage working on a UFO incident that happened in his state of Maine. His wife and children had gone out for the night and he was home alone. Hopkins was sitting there when the phone rang. A man on the other end of the line identified himself as a representative of a New Jersey UFO organisation, which actually turned out to be phony. He said that the chap, quote, wanted to know if he could come in here and talk to me about the UFO case. He also asked if I was alone, and I said yes, end quote. Hopkins was telling his story to a reporter for broadcast on the NBC radio in 1978, a couple of years after the incident. After he hung up the phone and walked from the phone to the front door and turned on the light, to his surprise, the man was already coming up the steps. Hopkins says, recalling the incident, if he was even as close as across the street or next door telephoning. He could not possibly have gotten here as soon as I did to turn the light on for him. So he let the stranger into his home. When he came in, Hopkins was a bit taken aback by his appearance. He said he wore a neatly tailored black suit, black shoes, black socks and a white shirt with a black tie. And he wore a black derby. You don't see derbies very often. And I thought to myself, this guy looks just like an undertaker. After he had seated himself, the visitor removed his hat and Hopkins continued his narration. This character was as bald as an egg. He didn't even have eyebrows or eyelashes. It looked like he had smooth plastic skin like a doll, except that it was dead white colour. His lips were a brilliant ruby red and he spoke in an expressionless monotone scanning speech. He constructed no phrases and sentences, just a sequence of words evenly spaced. His voice was completely passive, with no inflection or intonation, as if you were hearing it from a machine that could talk. Hopkins also noted some other strange things about his guest. He sat perfectly motionless and wore grey suede gloves. He idly brushed his lips with the back of a glove, 
And when he put his hand down, the back of his glove was bright red, and the red on his mouth was smeared, so I knew he was wearing lipstick. Then I could see that his mouth was a perfectly straight slit. Apparently, he did not have what we call lips, so the lipstick was put on as a decoy. His mouth was more like a ventriloquist dummy. They talked about the UFO case the doctor was investigating, then the story takes a nasty twist. Apparently satisfied with the information he had gathered from Hopkins, he changed the subject of the conversation. The visitor told Hopkins he had two coins in his pocket, which was correct, and asked him to take a coin out of his pocket and to hold it in the palm of his hand. Hopkins chose a shiny new penny. He then told Hopkins to watch the coin closely. Hopkins said, it started to develop a silver colour instead of copper, and then the silver became bluish, and the penny started to get quite fuzzy as if it were out of focus or blurred, and then it was simply gone. It slowly dematerialised. After it had vanished, the visitor told Hopkins that the coin would never be seen again. He then asked if Hopkins was familiar with the UFO abductee Barney Hill. He replied that he had heard of him, but he thought he had died. The visitor then told Hopkins that was correct, that Barney didn't have a heart, just like you no longer have a coin. But actually, Barney Hill died of a stroke or cerebral hemorrhage. Following this demonstration and the implied threat, the visitor ordered the doctor to destroy all of the information he had about the UFO case. A very shaken Hopkins then said, as he spoke his last words, I noticed his speech was slowing down, his words became slower and further spaced. He slowly got to his feet unsteadily and he said very slowly, My energy is running low. Must go now. Goodbye. Just like that. Then he said that the visitor clung tightly to the step railing as he went down, placing both feet on each step and then disappeared around the corner into a bright light. This encounter so terrified and intimidated Hopkins that he destroyed all his hypnotic regression tapes of the incident and, in fact, all traces of any UFO materials he had. He never, ever did any more research in that field again. There are just so many genuine reports of encounters with these mysterious men in black that I simply don't have the time to tell you of them all over the decades since the 1920s. So I'm simply going to share four more accounts with you. Most of these are within the past decade. Not all people who have these encounters are regular off-the-street people. One famous comedian, actor, producer and successful businessman, Dan Aykroyd of Ghostbusters fame, had an encounter while working on a show about UFO encounters. This is a man who has a lot to lose professionally, but that has never stopped him from talking about his belief in these encounters. In 2002, he had a contract with the Sci-Fi Channel to produce a series on UFOs called Out There. Eight episodes were filmed but never aired. During a break in the taping of the final episode, Dan stepped outside onto the streets of New York to have a smoke. While standing there on the street, he had his encounter. Shaken, he went back inside the studio where he was informed two hours later that the taping would cease immediately and that the series had been cancelled. The cancellation was never explained to him and the existing episodes were never released to DVD. 
The following are his words taken from an interview in a video entitled Dan Aykroyd on UFOs Unplugged. There's a link to the episode page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com to part of the full interview with Dan on that experience. In Dan's own words, What happened was, we sold the show to the Sci-Fi Channel and it was called Out There. And I basically interviewed all of the people that I had admired in various fields of study like Colin Andrews in the Crop Circle Movement, Linda Moulton Howe, the expert in cattle mutilation, John Mack. I talked to him. I talked to the Allagash guys who were taken in a canoe in the trip in Maine. And I, I mean, the last show we did, I had both Bassett who has the UFI time clock, and Greer. Both Bassett and Greer were there. They were my two guests for the two. Well, the show was cancelled that afternoon. And I was outside before I knew it was cancelled, in between the interviews, and uh, I was outside and Britney Spears called me because she wanted me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I was outside having a cigarette. The phone rang. I was like, hello, Britney, how are you doing? Sure, of course I will. I turned away like this, moves head to left. I turned back, moves head back towards the camera. And there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I was trying to look at the plate, but the plate seemed kind of fuzzy. And definitely a police car and two guys were there. And a big, big tall guy got out of the back seat and he stood in the street. On 42nd Street it was. We were on 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. And he looked right at me and literally I was on the phone. Sure, I'd love to. I looked back, saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back half a second later and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type and whether this was like a warning to me because that guy that got out of the back seat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And it was just this fast. Talking on the phone, the guy gives me a dirty look. Talking on the phone, car gone. That's what happened. Then two hours later we were told not to continue taping and the show was cancelled and none of them would hear. I don't know. I don't know. Was it a me and I be experience, you know? Black helicopters, military abductions that happen. People are taken and talk about being visited by military personnel and being debriefed about the abduction. Was it technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting? They wanted to warn me off or they wanted to give me verification that I was on the right track. I don't know. But I do know. I turned back a second later and it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from 0 to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th and 42nd Street going past me and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square. I would have seen that car and I looked around and I mean, man, I was looking and it was gone. So... I don't know. The tapes exist. I have them. We're going to try to repackage them. We might put them out on DVD. This next encounter is one of the most interesting in recent times in my opinion because there is an alleged video from the hotel showing the encounter the staff had. I've embedded this video into this episode page on the podcast website so you can check it out for yourself www.walkingtheshadowlands.com 
On October the 14th, 2008, one Shane Savar and an unnamed security guard were standing outside their hotel in or near Niagara Falls, Canada, when they witnessed a UFO. There is a link to the newspaper report of the sighting on the episode webpage. Shane reported it to the API, Aerial Phenomena Investigations Group. In the early afternoon of May 10th, 2009, Two alleged men in black came to Shane's workplace. Shane, who was the hotel manager, was not on duty at the time. The workers, who were accosted and aggressively questioned by these men, told Shane of their visit. These are Shane's own words from an interview on the Midnight in the Desert radio show. One of my doormen approached me and he said, he had kind of a weird look on his face and he said to me, can we go into your office and talk? And I said, sure, 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 no problem. So I brought him into my office and he said, Oh, something really weird happened here yesterday and you weren't here. He said, Oh, there were a couple of really strange looking men that were there and they kind of freaked everybody out and they were asking questions about you. And now, of course, I'm getting a little bit nervous and, uh, What are you talking about? And he goes, Well, they were, I don't know how to describe them. They were extremely odd looking. They were really, really tall, like six foot five at least, he says, and they were identical heights. They were exact same height. They were wearing exact same clothes and they had the exact same faces, like they were twins. And he said, they were wearing black suits, black trench coats. They were wearing like the old fashioned fedora hats. They had extremely, extremely pale skin. And he said, they came in. They looked around a bit and they asked for you. I said, I'm sorry, he's not actually working today. And it seemed like they didn't believe me. So they started to walk around the hotel. And shortly after, they went to the tour desk. I got busy and started to have to move cars around and get luggage. And by the time I came back, they were gone. But, he goes, they freaked me out. And I really wanted to tell you there were these weird guys in here looking for you. So now, of course, I'm a little bit sceptical and I'm a little bit freaked out all at the same time. The first thing I do is run into my security office because I know how to work the security system. And I reround the cameras and sure enough, here comes two gentlemen through the front door looking exactly how he described. And you can actually see my bellman, the one who's telling me the story, in the area where he's getting keys for a valet. And he literally does a double take right on the film. He looks and looked again as if, oh my gosh. These are extremely odd-looking people. And the next day, I came into work again, and I was talking with my tour desk. And one of them asked to talk to me. She came into my office the same as my bellman. And she said, I need to tell you about something that happened. I heard that you heard there were some men looking for you. And I said, yes. And she said, well, you don't know what happened when they came to my desk, she said. They asked a few questions about you, and they said strange things that I didn't understand. They were talking about governments and conspiracies and none of it made any sense to me. But she goes, they were very, very scary. And I said, well, why were they scary? And she said, they had no facial hair, none, she said. They had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. Their hair looked like they had a wig on, like it was attached to their hat, like it wasn't even real. And she said, and the scariest thing, she said, their eyes were so big and so blue that they almost hypnotized me a little bit. And she goes, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but I swear they knew what I was thinking. So I started to think about things other than you, and I don't even know if it worked. And she started to cry. 
And she said one more thing before she left. She said, these men, they didn't blink, not once, not once did I see them blink. I was completely freaked. And when I told my wife, she was really, really upset. And I was upset. And I literally, for weeks, I remember, as I drove home from the hotel, I was always looking in my rearview mirror. And I've got to be honest, I was a little bit paranoid wherever I went and how far I ventured out from house. And late at night, and then it just continued, and extremely bizarre things were happening within our household, um, almost like ghostly light. My wife would call me panicking telling me the toys were all going off in the playroom and our kids were sound asleep. And she could hear footsteps when there was nobody in the house and she was really, really torn up about the whole thing. And shortly after that, we ended up moving to Ottawa. The security video from the hotel shows the two alleged men in black entering the hotel. It's pretty clear. The final account that I'm going to share today comes from an 18-year-old lad by the name of James. I asked him if he'd like to share this account in his own words, but he was reticent to do so, understandably. So this is James' experience with the men in black. For context, I'm British and live in England, and this story took place when I was 15, I'm now 18, but it's bugged me ever since it happened. This is a very short story, but one that has lingered in the back of my mind ever since it happened. I was playing video games on a Wednesday night, and there was a knock on the door about 11pm, which was out of the ordinary, and in of itself a bit odd. My ma'am was the one who answered it, but since it was so late, I came out to see who it was myself. We have a square-shaped spiral staircase with platforms as you go up each step, and there's a balcony at the top which I could look over. It was also dark, so it would be hard to see me, especially from outside of the front door. When my ma'am opened the door, there were two men who she described as sounding German, wearing black suits. They were pasty white, tall, clean-shaven and quite bulky. They didn't say anything like why they were there, what they wanted or who they were, just asking if I was home. What got me was that they didn't just go by my first name but also my last, Truton, like the second doctor, which isn't very common. My ma'am thankfully said no and told them they had the wrong house. My ma'am, after she had closed the door, told me that they were still outside looking at our windows. She told me to stay out of sight since she thought they were eyeing the house to see if I was home or not. After about 20 minutes, they finally left the pavement, but my ma'am was convinced they'd be sat in their car still watching, so I hid a bit longer. It was really intimidating, especially considering I was 15 and had never done anything malicious. This was three years ago and I've heard nothing since. I've always wondered who they were, what they wanted, or if it was even a malicious encounter. Nonetheless, it truly freaked me out. To clarify, I'm not certain they were German. That's just what my ma'am said the accent reminded her of. They were pretty quiet, so I barely heard them myself and only got a glance at them in the dark outside the door. Here's some pretty good theories. A harmless prank by a friend calling some religious group to my house, Jehovah, Mormons, etc. I somehow ended up on a cult's list. Deep Web could have led them to me somehow.
This episode has been all about the men in black. I've talked about what they do, what they look like, and shared a few experiences, my personal one as well. But what I have not discussed are theories or possible explanations. There are many out there, but here are some of them for your consideration. The experiences are all fiction. We all hallucinated our experiences. The experiences were all practical jokes. The men in black were from some alphabet government agency. They are aliens or star people who live on some secret base here on Earth. They are robotic beings sent on behalf of some unknown organisation. These beings come from another dimension entirely. I'm sure there are many more theories about who they are. I don't know who they are. But from my own personal experience, I know that they are very, very real. And they exude a not very nice energy. You all need to make up your own minds as to what you think they are, but this much I can state for certain. They are definitely not like J and K from the Men in Black movie. This episode's slightly creepy and different bumper music is called Rhythm Stalker by Cone. Copyright 2010, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information, check out the episode's webpage, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. If any of you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make, or experiences that you might like to share with myself or my audience, then please don't hesitate to email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or if you're a member of Anchor at anchor.fm, then you can leave me a voice message via their platform, which I could include in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows, you may hear your review read out at the end of one of these podcasts. And of course, so you don't miss out on our next episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and on iHeartRadio now also. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more the merrier. Also, please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website, check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours. We'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 